Hello, and welcome to Danley and Friends. I'm your host, Ryan Danley. On this podcast, I seek to spread joy by connecting you with my friends and other people who are doing positive things in their community and in the world at large. I also seek to spread connection through encouraging open dialogue, having difficult conversations, and exploring new ideas and concepts. I met this next guest when I was in college. We're both members of the same fraternity. Most recently, Dr. Derek Tillman Kelly has been named Chief of Staff in The Ohio State University College of Engineering to serve as Principal Advisor to Dean Ayanna Howard, Education Researcher, Administrator, and Project Manager. Tillman Kelly most recently served as Director of the Fellows Program and Network Engagement for the University Innovation Alliance, or UIA, for universities to support institutional transformation with the goal of eliminating race, ethnicity, first-generation status, and socioeconomic status as predictors of student success and completion. Ohio State is one of 11 UIA member institutions and President Christina M. Johnson serves on its board. Prior to being named director of the UIA Fellows Program, Tillman Kelly served in multiple roles at Ohio State, including as the inaugural UIA Fellow and Special Assistant to the Director of the Center for Higher Education Enterprise. He is also co-principal investigator and research lead for the Lewis Stokes Midwest Regional Center of Excellence for Broadening Participation in STEM which is funded by the National Science Foundation. A highly visible role, the Chief of Staff will help shape the strategic direction of the college by exploring, identifying, and evaluating comprehensive information and data to provide guidance, advice, and assistance on a range of issues. This position serves as a member of Dean Howard's Executive Committee and the Senior Staff Leadership Team. How does one find themselves in this position? Well, as Derek says, by being himself. What's that involve? We'll see. Enjoy. Well, I have Dr. Derek Tillman Kelly with me today, PhD. He's a wonderful person. He's always been wonderful. Nice to me. Uh, just a creative, pleasurable person to be around. Uh, he's just full of knowledge. I think he shares uh, a lot of it through social media and the way that he interacts. And I think it's very poignant commentary on what's going on, but uh, you know, keeps it light at the same time. But he's also super smart. The dude gives talks. Uh, he gave a talk on higher education and the history of it that kind of slapped me in the face and made me realize how recent <laughs> all this stuff has been developing. But uh, I don't want to continue about you because we're going to get into you a little bit more. I find it interesting to hear from other people uh, their elevator pitch. So if you had to give your elevator pitch, who is Dr. Derek Tillman Kelly? So thank you for having me first and foremost. Um, I think normally I would say I'm a knower, sort of a retainer or um, store of things. Um, but I'll be honest, as life has transitioned in the last month or so, that answer feels less true because I feel like I know less things, um, which maybe isn't true. But I, I think from like my brain is I seek to know things and not just the things I need for work, um, but like to know random facts, not because um, they will necessarily serve me, uh, but because they often can add an interesting tad bit to life and conversation. Um, and so I, I tend to want to know things and I do that by like exploring um, random questions, thoughts, uh, people, uh, in ways that sort of allow me to then collect bits and pieces of who they are through their words or um, work. Um, sometimes it's images, right? Like that sort of thing. But usually um, looking to, to sort of grab a hold of people and their words. Yeah. And where do you think that that comes from? Because uh, I find in a lot of your roles, uh, you are a strategist but you're also uh, someone who serves. So you are very big on relationships, very big on collaboration. And uh, you describe that as just like a really hard process because it involves extra resources outside of, you know, what you're normally doing. Where, where does that come from? Is that like inherent in you that you're just curiously supportive of people? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I've never heard it said that way, but like, 
Thank you. Um, you. You said it better than I perhaps could have. I, as part of it, I think, is that I like people, um, and I usually I used to like them from afar because I am an introvert at heart, um, and I I I embrace my introvertedness. But that also meant that there are times where it felt awkward to interact with people in real life, and so instead of up close, tangible interactions and conversations, sometimes I would just sit and observe. Um, and the, I feel like the more you see, hear, um, know, the more you can sort of explore and go deeper into people. And so I, I found, I think, early on in life sort of being in a space where I didn't know people, um, like tangibly know them, but I got to know them in ways that I could get a gift that represented something that was similar and important to them in ways that they didn't know that people noticed. Um, and so Part of it was like my natural inclination. The other part was like the way it made people feel. Um, it, they felt seen in ways that I think they had not previously. And so once I realized that those sort of things could coexist, it sort of just was something I did more. And I think in some ways, the work and roles that I've sort of fallen into, because I've rarely chosen a job, like outside the most recent one, I've never applied for a job. It was sort of set up for me. Um, it allowed those things to be true in ways that me paying attention allowed me to better serve the institution or the people um, that I was in relationship with from a work and life perspective in ways that sort of just worked out. Yeah. And uh, can you talk about that journey of falling into these jobs as you described it? Because you have some really cool jobs. Like you are the chief of staff of the College of Engineering at the Ohio State University currently. And, uh, you know, you've been doing that for a little bit. But before that, um, the inaugural fellow, um, UIA, and which is a consortium of universities that are just working on basically making higher education uh, more achievable for uh, everyone, if you will. And so... Um, how are you landing these gigs? How are you falling into these situations, man? Talk about that journey. Honestly, by not having a plan. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what I mean, like not having a life plan where like, this is what I must do. Um, and so I went to college to be a physician. Um, I, I try to be careful with the language of doctors since there are lots of ways to be a doctor. Uh, but like, I went to be a medical physician and I thought that that is what I would do. I wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon as a kid. <laughs> ben Carson, mostly, um, I think is part of the why, but like who says that at 13? There. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then when I got to college, undergraduate was fine. I wasn't great. Like I wasn't a stellar student, but I, would, I did fine. Um, but I had a lot of challenging interactions with the medical system, just the way they treated folks that I loved. Um, that sort of didn't sit right with me. And so then I was like, oh, shoot, can I go into a space where I don't trust the system? Mm. Not really. Um, and Or at least I didn't think I could. And so right. I sort of took a step back and mentors sort of said, so cool, you're a junior in college, you getting a biology degree, you were going to med school. What else do you like to do? And I realized that I really did like, like the, learning the ways in which the university worked. Um, and so then they were like, oh, cool. There are lots of us with degrees in that. Who knew? Uh, and so I took that as an opportunity to sort of go forward. I ended up at IU and IUPUI for a master's degree, which is how I met you, right? Yeah. Um, and then I thought I was going to be in fraternity and sorority life for my professional career. And I liked y'all as students. Um, I did not love the work and sort of the the limited level at which I could serve folks. And so like, I loved the idea of serving at an institutional level. And so in my mind, that meant you needed to be a university president. Um, maybe someday, let's not hold me either way. And then from like, and so then I was like, so what do you do? Most university presidents become faculty members, right? Like that's the traditional path. So I went and got a PhD at Ohio State with the goal originally, I think, of wanting to be a faculty member, but then learning really quickly that I really love administration. Like I love the doing of the work that helps other people. And if you wanna go faculty, you usually need tenure before you can do the administrative stuff, which meant I would have had to do 
a PhD, and then at least six years after the PhD where I did research and teaching, but not the administrative service that I wanted. Yeah. And so was, then I took a step back and was like, okay, so cool. I don't know what I want to do. And I was fortunate. Um, my advisor was named the director of a center of higher education research. Um, and the work that I had been doing on the team partly was a research assistant, but also was sort of the administrative coordination of the work that we were doing. And so I fell into the job as a special assistant um, in that center. And who would have known that the year that I took that role was also the year that Ohio State helped found the University Innovation Alliance. And so I was supposed to onboard the inaugural fellow. So I was not supposed to be it. And then there was a woman who was offered the job, but lived in another state, had a young child and thought about leaving her support system and declined the job. And they were like, don't you want to do the job? Sure. <laughs> and literally it was a sure. And it was a split appointment in ways that like I kept my first job. I got that second job and quickly learned that two jobs that require full-time work aren't feasible and sort of then took on that role full-time um, as that inaugural fellow. And then in that role, I was sort of a younger person in the group. I didn't have a spouse. I didn't have children. And so when the executive director needed someone who could sort of last minute get on a plane and go support an event or a meeting, Derek. Um, and so then from there, we created my last role um, because I was sort of doing a lot of the work. We got some additional resource and it was like, wouldn't you like to do that rather than doing that and trying to support an individual campus? Yeah. Then so it just kept going that way. And literally it was always sort of stepping into the role unintentionally because it needed to be done. I could see it. I could set some parameters to it and then people acknowledging it and was like, don't you want to do it longer term? Okay. <laughs> so one thing that I think is super interesting is you said that you were a pretty standard student, yet at these turns where these opportunities come about, you're the person who's being selected. What changed in your work ethic or what? It, what is it about the way that you operate that, you know, brings you to rise to these occasions, I guess? Honestly, I, so high school, I was a stellar student. College, I think I was misaligned. So I had heard from my family very early on that I wanted to be a physician. I held on to that even when it started to feel distant from me. And so then it's hard to be great in spaces where you're not really trying to go. Um, and so when I found that higher ed and student affairs were sort of disciplines, it clicked. Like, I like complex things, organizations. Um, I like the power of education. Um, and I particularly like the ways in which universities could serve folks um, if we intentionally did so. Um, and then I think on top of that is I believe with all my heart um, that my job is to do the job that I have. And, and that's not like, what's my title or job description. That's like, what is the work in front of me? Um, and so if I can see it, understand it, make sense of it, I'm going to do the work regardless of if it's my purview, unless it's someone else's. And then I'm going to check in with them first. But like, my thought is like, if there is a gap to be filled, fill it, um, rather than waiting for someone to call you. And I think that really is what made the difference, right? Like, people saw my willingness to sort of have an ever expanding plate to meet the needs that were there and to still do good work. Um, because sometimes I think we take on more stuff and then the work product suffers. But like, I sort of got in a groove um, in ways that made me happy. And I think allowed me to do really good work because I love doing the work I was doing. Man, so many threads that I want to pull on there. And I think it's beautiful, uh, this concept of being aligned with what you want to do, because I think it does allow you to get into that flow. And then it doesn't really feel like work because, um, I mean, you still have those things that you don't like, but you know, for the most part, you're okay with them because you're fulfilled in what you're doing. You know what I mean? But when you're misaligned, man, every day you wake up and you're like, what am I doing? You know? So uh, talk about that alignment. Like, how did you find that? Like, how did you find 
what it was that you want to be doing, I guess. I mean, so I think two things. One is really good people. Um, but before that was to like actually see where I was working. So I like that I have a biology degree. I appreciate my biology and cognitive science backgrounds. But I also know that like the the wanting to be a biologist wasn't true for me. But when I was studying with other people, helping them like change the way that they thought about studying, like that was exciting. Yeah. And so it was interesting because it was like the subject matter doesn't matter to me fully, but like the, the community around the subject matter was super helpful. I think part of it was also the kind of institution I was at. But then I think the other part was like people seeing possibilities for me that I didn't necessarily see for myself and being intentional on telling me. So like when I was thinking about going to get my master's, I applied to three schools, I think. Um, and the my vice president for student affairs sort of coached me through like the application process. And then before I went to do school visits, she wrote on a note card the institution I was going to go to. <laughs> um, just because she had been in the field a while, she could sort of understand what I needed, how I might make connection. And she was right. When she op- when we finally opened the card at the end of that year, I was going to Indiana. Um, and it was her way of saying, like, I knew where you should be going, but I wasn't going to push you into that. I wanted you to sort of go and explore it on your own um, in ways that actually gave me sort of a power in identifying what worked for me. Um, because the easy answer would have been to stay local um, because I could have taken a full-time job and gone to school that would have meant I would have been in financial aid still um, rather than sort of doing the broader work that I've gotten the opportunity to do. So inherent in that is you found this network of people that you trust, people that you've put around you that have gotten you along the right path. Um, you're a relationship builder through and through. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that, you know, for all of your jobs, you've had to build these extensive networks and really get work done. And it requires a lot of energy. What are your keys to doing this work and building these relationships? Because some people just can't do it. Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is because I'm not trying to do it, I, I think. And I don't mean, I shouldn't say it that way. Like, I don't mean it from like, a I don't want to be in relationship with you. But like, I don't want to build a relationship for work. I want to build a relationship that will allow me to know fuller pictures of you. Um, and for me, like, that means knowing that you have children or a partner, knowing the, your favorite candy, Um because it allows me to celebrate you when I need to celebrate you. Um, so I think part of it is like going in it from a, a full human perspective. Like I want to know the human um, and I will get to know the work that you do. But I, I think the second part for me is sort of being fully authentic in who I am. Um, right. So like you mentioned, I'm a chief of staff and I think a lot about what I'm supposed to wear to work. I don't, though, do that all the time. Like, there are days where, like, I'm really feeling black jeans. I'm wearing black jeans. I'm not wearing a suit that day. Um, And certainly there are limits, right? Like, if we're meeting with donors or the president, I'm probably going to wear a suit that day. But, like, owning my ability to be authentic and not just my attire, right? Like, my clothes, but also my words. Um, I don't say... I'm not formal often. I I use y'all. In 2021, it's gender inclusive, but I used it originally because it felt good. Um, My family's from Chicago and Louisiana, really. And so like that was language that was familiar. And I wasn't willing to give that up because I got a PhD um, and because I sit in higher ed. And so I think for a lot of people, that means like it feels genuine. and I think that last part is like, I show my emotions. So like, if you work with me or know me well enough, you will see me cry. You will see me frustrated, not like um, mad, because I don't like to feel or be mad. Like, we can deal with frustration. I can be upset with you. We can, and we can work through it. But yeah. I won't sit in a space of feeling mad for long. And I think people have been able to experience the broad spectrum of like, personality and experience in that way. Um, And I think it's helpful. And then I think the other part is, it goes back to how I introduced myself, like the knower and collector of stuff. 
when I ask people stuff, it's not just to like um, flippantly ask it. And so like, if you were to go through the contacts in my phone, you would see random notes about people. Um, Cause it's one of the ways that I keep up with what I know about you. And like, I don't actually refer back to it often because like it, but putting it in my phone helped me remember it. Um, and so like, I try to do those things, kinds of things that I think have served me well. And I, I think it serves me well with most people. I'm sure there are some who are like, mm, no, no, thank you. And that's fine. That means we're not meant to be overlapping in this moment. There's a theme throughout your life that I see. Um, and I'll sum it up as breaking the shackles of who people think you're supposed to be <laughs> and everything from, you know, you're supposed to be a doctor. And I mean, you became a doctor, not a physician, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, you're supposed to be a physician. You're, you're supposed to, you know, do all these things and be all these people. And you're like, nah, I'm actually going to wear my black jeans and show up as myself and say, y'all, where does that come from, man? Cause that is hard you know, breaking through who everyone thinks you're supposed to be. Peer pressure's hard. Societal pressure's hard. It's why a lot of people are working jobs they hate, married to people they don't like and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, what I do know um, is that I had to decide really early on in my life who I was. Um, so I, my family is um, in a box religious, right? Like we believe in God. Um, <laughs> and specifically like Jesus Christ, like we believe it. Um, uh, but we did not, um, go to church religiously growing up. Like I, it was not something I did. And when we went, the children went, my parents did not necessarily. Um, but I came in my earlier years to understand that I wanted that relationship and I wanted to be in church. So when I could finally drive, I drove myself to church. Um, but I also knew really early on, if I remember correctly, the third grade, like clear as day that I was gay. Um, and people told me that those two things were supposed to be in conflict, but they, they didn't feel in conflict to me. Like God had never shared that I was um, an abomination or somehow out of the will of God because I was gay. And I can remember clear as day telling a friend in third grade that I did not like girls. Like, and, and, and that was how it was said because it was crass. But like, but like it was, th that was a point early on where I had to make some decisions about who I was going to be. Um, I, I didn't choose to, to like men like that. That was just what it was. Um, but I also, I don't, per I mean, I guess technically we choose to be believers in Christ, but like I didn't choose it in the sense of like, I sought it out. Like it felt right for me. Um, and so then reading and studying and knowing all the ways that people sort of talked about the the dissonance that should happen there um, and not having it experienced worked for me. I think the other part was I wasn't willing to like invest a lot of resources into being somebody else. Yeah. Um, it's expensive to be other people. And I, and I mean, like part of it is like physically, like monetarily expensive, right? Like if you want to dress a certain way or be in a certain tier of dress, that can be expensive, but it's also like emotionally and spiritually expensive to, to pretend. And, and I, I mean, I also had the privilege, my family by and large was supportive. They, they never, I mean, like they're, they're, they're imperfect. We're all imperfect, but like they never made me feel like I was a bad person because I was gay um, or that I was lying because I also called myself a Christian. Yeah. So, mm. <laughs> I like that. And it, ne it never made sense to me how you could say God created everything and then say that one of his creations was imperfect. Like the, the I don't know, the logic yeah. there just, just never stood <laughs> for me. So I think you're perfect, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so That's what's up, man. Um, I think that strength that you're able to find is something that's rare. Uh, a lot of people aren't able to uh, look at adversity and the face and go, Hey, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to stare it in the face. I'm going to accept that this is who I am, even though the world might tell me that this is wrong or people might have a different opinion. I think that that's like probably the strongest thing that you can do as a person is live. Like everyone doesn't want you to, because man, it's easy to fall in line, you know? And I'll tell you though, I don't think that I was intentional about it early in life. Certainly 
being someone who invested in counseling um, during the course of schooling was helpful um, because they gave me words um, or language to sort of speak to what I was doing and, and then make some intentional choices along the way. But pre-counseling, I don't know that I would have articulated it the way I just did, um, but it was like having other people coach you along the way. Uh, it's always someone else coaching, right? Like that sort of unintentionally gives you the the reality. And I think there were times where my first therapist was like, no, 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 no. I, I know you want to assume that it's your fault or that you did the thing wrong because like you believe that other people are often right in their assessment. This In this moment, that's not true. You, you did all that you could do. And like, you need to be okay with that. And she wasn't, um, she was kind, but she also was like, what I'm not going to do is allow you to say this about yourself. And I was like, okay, okay, <laughs> moving on. And so like, it, it, I think it was helpful though, in ways that sort of called me to be like, so who are you though in this moment? Yeah. What are the, uh, some of the key themes that you've seen in your mentoring relationships? Because it seems like you've had these uh, you know, key mentors, these people in your life who've pointed you the right way. And uh, you've been able to find people who are genuine, who are authentic, who are <laughs> real in their you know, love for you and their want of your success. Some people don't want to see you do well. They want to crabs in the barrel. You know, what, what do you look for in these mentors and what are some some key themes that you've seen in these relationships? Hey, Ryan, I wish um, <laughs> that it felt like that was all intentional. I, I think one thing that I've noticed recently is that most of them are seasonal. Um, so not like the relationship um, disappears, but that there are people placed in life at particular moments in time to be particularly helpful. Um and at first, I sort of saw that as a failing, to be honest. Like, the people aren't so static, but, like, people have to walk you to a limit that they know. Um, and so I think that was part of it. I think the other part, though, was I was me. I, <laughs> um, like, I I didn't, I didn't ask people to mentor me. Um, and I know that that's probably not actually what I would tell students to do. Um, but, like embracing the people around me instead of sort of seeking out people who were known for something, right? Because I think we often are like, that's a rock star across the country. And sometimes that works out really well. But many times they are busy and inundated with lots of people who think they're rock stars. And so sometimes you got to look around you. So like my doctoral mentor, we met at a conference and like, I went to his session because it interests me. It was in line with what I wanted to do from a research perspective. And then I asked a question, he responded. Um, and it sort of went from there. And so like, oftentimes they were sort of natural occurrences in ways that I put myself out just enough in spaces that were comfortable already, right? So like, I wasn't going into a, a nuclear physics sort of course and like random and nothing for you. Um, but like when it, when it intersected with who I was, what I wanted to know more about, it's a lot easier to feel empowered to be in relationship with someone else. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think I was sort of flawed in thinking about mentorship really early on as like this, the person is really high in their career and they're mentoring these folk, like the lowly folks at the bottom of the career who's trying to get up there. And then I realized really early on that that's not true and that mentorship works in both directions. So like you have to feel like you can offer something back to the person who you might call your mentor, um, even if it's not the career advice or the, the large stuff that we think about seeking from other people. Yeah, I think that that is interesting because we often don't think about the benefit that we as ourselves have in the relationship, you know? Um, I don't know why it's so hard to value yourself. Like why, why people trip on that. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, you said something pretty profound that you kind of just skimmed over and you said people have to walk you to a limit they know. And people have different limits that they know. Mm -hmm. And you often in your roles, I imagine, have to assess 
people's limits and their strengths and, you know, understand how to put these pieces together. How do you make these assessments? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, so I think it's a couple of things. It, de- it depends on the circumstance. So in hiring, um, I think it tends to be a far more gut instinct kind of thing and not like I don't have rubrics and sort of things to assess candidates but like when it's time to make the final choice it, it has to be the coalesce like it has to coalesce in a way that is different than just they were perfect on paper um because there are lots of really good people on paper who may not gel with the organization and that the organization may not be able to fully support which I think becomes important but like when I'm looking at staff um, or like placement of people, my thought first is like, what's the core responsibility? Do they understand the core responsibility? Do they want to do the core responsibility? Um, and, And ultimately, like, would we be secure in that part? Because, you know, oftentimes we have a job and it has 10 requirements. Nobody's gonna have all 10, at least not at the beginning. Because if they did, they probably should be looking for their next job. Because once you've mastered it all, we should let you flourish somewhere else. Uh, And so like, really, can they do the core of the work? And then are we willing to invest in them to round out the rest? Uh, And so like, I tend to think about people and their development in two directions. I don't want to, I usually don't want to engage with people when it's about what they have failed to do. Because I think sometimes we have already lost them because we've either hurt them, um, sort of under-supported them, or pushed them to the margin in ways that they cannot perform fully. And so I usually want to focus on what are you doing well? What do you want to do better? Um, rather than like, where do I want you to go? If you got to choose the way we invested our resources in you, what would you prioritize for your growth? Because that way, it's a lot easier for me to hold you accountable to something you declared or like envisioned for yourself um, than for me to write your your dream scenario and then it not really align with you um, in ways that I think sort of push people there. But I, I think the other part, though, is sort of um, asking the extent to which it's okay that they misalign in some spaces for some period of time. Like, I mean, I am huge on grace. Um like we 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 owe each other, we owe ourselves to um, grace because life is hard. Um, and like life, even pre-COVID, like right pre-pandemic, pre-acknowledgement um, of racial uprising, life was hard. To be an adult is tough. Um, and then when you throw in all of the actual things that we endure or experience, um, we can't help but like give people some space to... To, to be personal humans um, and then think about how that is shown up or impact, impacting the work that they do. Because as I think I said earlier, work is secondary for me. I want really healthy humans because I think we can then do really good work together. But like, you got to be good first as a person. Um, and so I tend to focus a lot on what's going on personally. And then what does that mean for work and how might we better support you? I think that's... That's true. Um, people often separate work and home. And I think they talk about work-life balance and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it mm-hmm. kind of feels like that's the wrong way to think about it. Like you almost have to be like, hey, this is my day. You know, this is what my day is going to be. What do I have to take care of? How can I best treat myself and serve myself in all aspects of me being a human being today? You know, um, I feel like especially with re- remote work, we've almost become robots where it's like, you know, mm-hmm. you hop from one meeting to the next, one meeting to the next, one meeting to the next. And I haven't even processed the last meeting and, and switch gears. I'm like, you know, when you were in person, you had to walk from one room to the other, at least. <laughs> so which, which you, when you say that, like, I, I did not understand why early on I hated the expression work-life balance. Like I just didn't know why I disliked it. And then I was like, okay, Derek, you can't just dislike this. Like at some point you have to have rational thought. And like, I always think about and talk about life and rhythm. Um, I don't think I'm all that rhythmically inclined, but like the, the movement of life, cause there will be days where my life today was work. 
my my life outside of work are going to be limited. But there are also days where, yep, I should be at work. And my life, like my the rest of my life is my priority. And if we can be okay with the fact that the rhythm ebbs and flows, speeds up and slows down, I think we probably give ourselves more space and more grace ultimately, right? Because if there will be days where even in your darndest effort, you are unproductive from a work perspective, cool, or a life perspective, right? Like there, my couch, the corner of my couch is my favorite place in my house. Because it'll, yeah, it, it, one, it holds me well. Um, but two, like that, that is a day, there are days where that is where I need to be more than I need to be washing clothes or laundry or cutting the grass. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting that people will plug in their computer and plug in their phone to recharge it and understand that it has to rest, you know, but they won't do it for themselves. You know, they, either feel like they have to be doing something or I don't know. It, it's just, I don't know. You got to recharge. I think it's as important, like you said, for keeping that balance and keeping that rhythm. Um, something you said I thought was interesting uh, earlier was it's okay if people are misaligned for a little while. And what that observation requires is you to zoom in and out of the details of day to day and the big picture of the context of their career and you know, the big moving pieces as a whole. How do you do that? How do you, do you have a set schedule where you zoom out and- No. <laughs> you know, you that, know? Would be, that would be awesome <laughs> if I did. But no, I mean, I think part of it is, like if you're listening to the fullness of people, it happens pretty naturally um, because life will sort of make us. But I, I, I said it though, thinking about myself. So like, someone asked me what was the most difficult part in my current transition. And my response was something that I'm not proud of in the moment now, but like in the moment, it was very true. I don't feel um, useful to the organization yet. Um, and as someone who wants to be doing on behalf of serving the organization, it's a really difficult place to sit. But the person I'm sort of replacing in the chief of staff role who's retiring said, but it's worth the investment because these relationships will carry you through the long term. And like me getting to know people is being useful. One, because it means that I can access them later. But two, it also means in this moment, I'm listening to them from a blank slate, right? Like once I'm immersed in this new job or we're immersed in whatever work we do or immersed in the fraternity, whatever, it's really hard to see it cleanly. Yeah. And so like, this is a moment to see it cleanly at a really big, important point of transition, not just for me, but the organization, right? Like my boss has only been in her role as Dean since March. So it's all new. And her boss has been in her role since August, the provost. Yeah. And her boss has been in her role since August of 2020, right? Like, no, none of it's settled yet. We're still figuring out the new constellation of the organization. And it feels uncomfortable because I have familiarity there and because I want to be of service, but like it's worth it. It's worth me feeling misaligned for a couple months to ultimately be able to move faster when it's time. Go slow to go fast. I like mm -hmm. that because it's smooth. Yeah. I don't always enjoy it though. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but it's necessary and we'll, we'll live. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we talk about that process of alignment and uh, thinking about your work. I feel like you're pretty aligned with it. Um, one of the things that is interesting to me is you walked through in a speech that you gave uh, the history of higher education from <laughs> the founding of Harvard in 1636 up to present day and, you know, the impact of race and how it's played out and, Man, as you're playing, you know, going along, I'm like, okay, 1636, that's a long time ago. And then you talk, it's like 196 years before a black person was in college or something. I'm like, dang, that's a long time, but it's still like 1700 and something. And then you start going along, you start getting into the 40s and the 50s. And I'm like, dang, my mom was around in the 60s. Um, <laughs> and then you, you keep, I'm like, this is, this stuff was happening yesterday, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and it really kind of like 
I don't know, kick me in the ass because I live in a world where I can drink from the same water fountain. You know, no one has really called me out of my name that many times in life. And if they have, I've probably hit them and I'm not in jail. You know what I mean? I'm still alive. So <laughs> I mean, it's a different world. And I realized that I'm privileged for it. And that kind of showed me a lot. So um, you don't have to go through the whole thing, but can you, you know, if you had to give us the Cliff Notes version of that presentation, of that walkthrough, can you kind of describe, you know, what it was about? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the most important part was that race was always um, a part of higher ed. We often talk about it as this sort of, um, culturally neutral, or even maybe culturally positive um, investment, right? So we built the Harvards and Harvards and all of its accompanying <laughs> peers um, in the early days to simply say we were investing in the long-term education of society. What we don't say when we talk about Harvard is that you need it to be white, male, Protestant, uh, right? So like, we, we had all types of ways to slice and you need to be a landowner by and large. Um, and so Harvard has done really good in many ways and higher ed, I think, right. I'm a, I'm invested in it by being a part of it has done lots of good, but it's not been without the the trappings of society. And so one, it's, it's sometimes frustrating that we can actually pinpoint all the dates when people got invited into spaces, yeah. um, right? Like we, we know when the first black folks came into college, we know the number of years later when they actually graduated or when someone graduated, because it usually was a different black person. Um, we know when organizations came into existence in part because they were told they cannot join these other things, whether we're talking about fraternities um, or particular types of institutions like HBCUs, right? Or we know the politics, and I will use Ohio because I'm we're in Ohio. Um, I think about the land grant institutions that were supposed to explicitly expand access. Mind blowing! That I, that was mind blowing. Give us give us that. Talk about that. Yeah. And so the places like Ohio State, um, who was founded in 1870, but was a part of the first round of land grant institutions or Morrill Act. Um, was to to take land, which let's talk about that for a second. The U.S. government was taking land out west, allowing a state to sell it to build an institution of higher education. We got wow. Ohio State. Wow. Welcome. Um, and it had a couple of names before that. But then in 1890, when folks were like, okay, so we did land grants. They have expanded access, but we failed to include folks, especially Black folks. Let's try it a second time. And the second time, though, we did not do land because there was very little land to take from indigenous folks to sell. And so it was like, we gave you a pot of money. um, And the Moral Act 2 actually told states like Ohio, you can do one of two things. You can incorporate Black people into your institution, or you have to use these resources to build a new institution. Ohio State and the state of Ohio, let's call it the state, decided to sort of do both. Central state came into existence, but we did not give them federal land grant status. And so all of those additional dollars got funneled to Ohio State until the presidency of Gordon Gee, his second term at Ohio State in the early 2000s. That's wild. Which which meant that for central state, they were, for many ways, a Black land grant, except for the fiscal and political capital that should have come with it. And it was for like years, right? Like it was for, it was almost, since like 1890, right? <laughs> yeah. That's- yeah. And so, it, and I think in that moment, people are like, oh, what's the big deal? Lots. Central did not get access to the funding that is set aside for 1890 institutions because it was not one, even though it was by all intents and purposes. It was doing the work. It was a public institution in the state, but we as a state had not recognized it. And so therefore they could not tap into resources. And when we finally gave them that status, we did not say they got to go back and get the resources they should have gotten. Wow. And so then we're like, I wonder why their residence halls are less 
new. Um, <laughs> I wonder why they have less students or less fancy technology. That's crazy. Or you wonder how we funneled money into one institution, the one I work for, that ultimately, like, right, we can't say this amount of money did this specific thing for Ohio State. But I can tell you how this slice of money would have had a tenfold impact at a central state, right? Because Ohio State's budget this year is $8.5 billion when you include the medical center. Central state's budget may be 150 million. And so if they were due 150 million, it would double it, you know? Exactly. Or this would be a fraction of 8.5. That's yeah, exactly. Wild. Oh. And, it's, and, and it's and I and and I I don't I did not do that presentation to like make people feel bad. My my point was we've talked about higher ed as if it was race, gender, sexuality, agnostic. It hasn't been. We know that we have served some people better. And, and if people are looking at most recent past, the broad landscape of higher ed is predominantly women. But if you were to look at Ohio State five years ago, we were one of the few institutions in the country that was not predominantly women. And it was because we were so heavily STEM. Mm. And so we balanced the, the influx of women because we still had pretty heavily male dominated disciplines, including the college I'm a part of. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys, I mean, people listen to this, you have to go listen to his speech on that and I'll put it in the show notes because it rocked my world. And I thought it was super interesting. Um, one of the things you talk about at the end was some of the ways that we can fix this. And I love solutions. And one that stuck out to me, um, you talked about uh, merit aid versus need-based aid and how we need to look at need-based aid a little bit more. And uh, I think that that's a wonderful idea because that's a time period where you can't really blame a person for everything they did up to college. They were a child. You know what I mean? They were a child. And this is a transitional period where they're going to get spit out into the real world and have a completely different starting point than other people. And I mean, I think the idea of giving them some aid through that time period and then letting them run with uh, somewhat of a better starting place it would probably serve society well. You know what I mean? It would probably help those people. It would probably help the, the kids and the generations after them because they'd be able to serve more and be more comfortable and and offer more to society. Um, talk to me about that, man. Yeah, so, so need-based aid has existed for a really long time. And I, and it's, it's important to say it as someone who has worked in financial aid, that it has existed. Um, the problem had been as institutions sought to climb rankings, right? They wanted to be the best known, insert whatever, College of Engineering, Liberal Arts Institution. We started to divert the financial aid budget to merit aid. And if you look at what merit aid really is, it reinforces those folks who likely had the best resourced pre-college experience, right? So the share of merit dollars, and which I don't even think we call it, that people are trying to move away from merit because they recognize merit is problem can be problematized. But like, if you look at the share of those dollars, what you will see is that they came from the more well-resourced high schools, more likely to have parents with college degrees, even graduate degrees. And so then when you start talking about the fact that we give them additional money because they got, they were further along their academic trajectory, right? They, they did more AP courses. You and I both know there are some high schools that don't have AP courses. Yeah. So how would a student come in <laughs> with AP credit if we didn't do it. And there are lots of ways that the state is trying to address that, right? Like I think of Ohio where we have college credit plus and the goal was we would create opportunities. That even if your high school didn't have calculus two, you might be able to test into that and go the collegiate route. But if you look at those, you will find that it follows the same trajectory of merit aid. White folks are more likely to benefit from college credit plus those from more affluent high schools are more likely to benefit from College Credit Plus. And so if we focused more extensively on need-based aid, we would allow folks to essentially come into college 
on similar playing fields based on the life circumstance that sort of shaped you. Reality being, though, college is more than just college, right? Like it's not just tuition, room and board and books. It's about the other experiences that you get to have. And so oftentimes we will meet the needs of folks in college, but we will have also given space to the more affluent students where their family has then less contribution than they expected to have, which means that they now have more free resources to do the other stuff, right? So like someone who came in on large scholarship whose parents expected to pay a large portion of their bill might now be might now be able to say, I'm going to stop out a semester and do an internship that's unpaid in DC because their family has saved money. And I'm not saying that we should make people not spend every dollar that they've ever saved for college, but we got to be truthful in saying that sometimes it benefits some people more um, than it benefits others. And so if we, if we center need-based aid or the way that, I, I mean, right, the, the national conversation is free college. We can talk about what that really means. I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> and what I really mean is like, right, it's become a political issue, but really essentially telling us to do the same thing, which is that, and in some ways, countering my own argument about less enga- engagement in merit aid. Because what it essentially tells us is, I would rather say no one needs to worry about the cost of community college or the first two years of college, however we want to frame it, so that everybody gets the benefit. Because we know, yes, there will be some people who came from really, really wealthy backgrounds who get free tuition that don't need it. And while I could be concerned about that smaller proportion of humans, if I get more folks who look at the cost of college and say, I will never go because I can't afford it, I am more than willing to subsidize a few wealthy folks for the sake of more inclusion of folks who have had less access. Which, But that's also my own sort of lens on, I will spend a tad bit more money helping wealthy folks if we can say the folks who actually needed the help will be served. Because in the way that we do it right now, we do a finite number of dollars and it still disproportionately goes to the wealthy folks. It just means that those who have been less resourced, whether it's community or family, still aren't coming. And so we know that need-based aid can sort of reimagine that. There is a caveat for folks who care. The way that we determine need is flawed um, in federal spaces. And we know it's just, it's hard to do. There is lots of reform that's possible. But to say that your parents make a certain amount of money and therefore should be able to pay a certain amount of tuition isn't really true when you start talking about wealth inequality, right? Because I know lots of folks whose parents made the same as mine, but they they came in a very different space and they had a lot more family wealth behind them. And so even though the dollar amount per year looked the same, their actual access to resource was far better. And so it's like, okay, fine. But, and it's complicated. But if we were free college or solely focused on need, you might do slightly better um, at supporting folks who would not otherwise be able to afford college. I think that's great because to me, collectively, to raise the education level of society is a net positive. You know, I think that's just wonderful. Um, <laughs> you're never going to have a 100% clean and perfect solution for anything. So I think that when people oppose things like this, they're always like, oh, well, it's not perfect. Name something that is. You know what I mean? Name anything that is. There's, there's nothing. <laughs> so um, there's there's one thing I might be able to think of, but that, that's it. You know, the, the, whoever created all this. But um, yeah, man. So I, I think that that's an interesting, interesting perspective. And I think to have the conversation, first of all, is very important. So yeah, we might not have honed in on how exactly to do it yet, but the recognition that it would be helpful and it would help a lot of people and it probably needs to be done, um, I think is a great place to be. And uh, man, like we were kind of talking about, I think, you know, if we have to play capitalism, let's play, you know, if we've got to play capitalism, let's play. So I think that most things start with dollars in America, especially. So it's kind of like... (laughs) You know, if you, if you don't have money, you can't do anything. And so right. then we, we get mad at people when 
they can't contribute to society and, oh, you're being a burden. Oh, you know, you get all these debt, you're doing things wrong. And it's like, well, I never had a chance. People talk about inheritance and they're like, you know, they look at it from a purely number standpoint. And they're like, oh, well, you know, most millionaires didn't inherit their money. But all these things that you talk about. So maybe they didn't inherit money, but their mom was home with them and was able to do homework with them and stuff. Whereas someone else had a single mom who was, you know, never home and they were kind of by themselves and, you know, had to fend for themselves or, you know, maybe they didn't have food. Maybe someone didn't work. Maybe they live with their grandparents. Maybe, you know, it, it's all kind of differences that are, quote, inherited um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that contribute to this, like, you know, emotional state and your your well-being that aren't just monetary. Yeah. And, and, and I think sometimes it's when we say people aren't contributing to society, what do we mean? Right. right? They're not contributing fiscally, which arguable, right? Because we know that folks with lower socioeconomic status backgrounds actually proportionately contribute more. Pay the most taxes in proportion. Because, and, and, and I know people are like, raw number. No, they don't. You're right. Raw number, they don't. But proportionally, it is, right? Because when we talk about what's the impact of a 10% tax rate, or what's the what's the impact of property taxes, or a 7.5% sales tax, I right? Like, the number is relative, but if I have $300 a week and it costs me $250 and you're talking about 7.5%, but it costs me $250 and I have $4,500 a week, yeah, you're right. The number is the same. But like the actual impact and difference it will make in somebody's life is different. And and that, But I don't think we actually like to have that conversation because then people feel like, what you're saying is that because I have a lot more wealth, I should be a bad, like I'm a bad person. No, you're not. What I'm saying is it's disproportionate. And I will say I was fortunate to study abroad in college. I studied in Copenhagen, which is considered one of the happiest places on earth because they have low expectations, not because they're actually happier than other places first. <laughs> but second, they have one of the highest tax rates in the world. And I remember my host father, who is a CEO of a company in Denmark that has some pretty large um, international spaces. And I was like, why are you okay with this? And his response was, if I am taxed more to ensure that my neighbors have what they need so that I don't worry about them breaking into my home, I am more than willing to be taxed more so that they would have what they need. And I feel like we sort of spin it the opposite way. If somebody doesn't have what they need, there's something deficient about them. But there's not. We, we built a system that privileges some at the expense of others. Nothing's really fine. Like nothing's infinite in society for real um, in terms of like resource. And so like we had to privilege somebody. And I even think, right, like I went to college. The brother just above me went to college. My three oldest siblings did not. And so like there are things that Bryant and I can do in our lives, right? Like the kind of work that we do the kind of flexibility with finances we have that sometimes means, and I won't call it a tax, that that I am giving money back to the rest of the family. Okay. One, there's only so much money you can spend. (laughs) But two, wouldn't you feel better if you knew the people that you cared about and the people you don't know, but who live around you are cared for, right? Like it's simple and like, I would rather you be good than me have more than enough. We can both be good. Like, yeah. We don't have to be exceptional. Like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, too, if you look at uh, the excess that we have in society, the waste that exists, the food waste, the clothing waste, the empty houses that sit around and stuff, it's like, I mean, we talked about misalignment. It clearly seems like there's some misalignment <laughs> you know, going down. So... Um, I think there's something there for sure. Um, when you see the world and you see the the future and uh, the way things are going, like what concerns you the most or what's what keeps you up at night, I guess? Uh, so one is that I think we sort of shun the people who have the solutions um, because they don't appear to be the solution havers, right? So... Um, there is no one better position to solve home homelessness 
um, or food insecurity than folks who have been homeless or food insecure. But because they've been that, we typically label them as a degenerate or um, somehow less worthy. And so like we're missing the opportunity um, to serve. And so like part of it is who are we not including, but also who are we not seeing like on some level, seeing them as people. Um, But I think the other is the folks that we sort of expect to save the day. Like I, as a black man, I struggle with the, the things that we ask of black women. Um, the ways that we expect them to be super mom, super businesswoman, and at all times nice and pleasant, <laughs> right? Like it's just a, it's a trash um, ask of something when you're literally saying, I want you to be in peak performance in every scenario that I give you. And I want you to always be super well composed, um, unfrazzleable, right? Like it just, it feels wrong. Um, and I, I, I raise black women and I'm sure there are other women of color who will say, what about me? I know their story more intimately than I might know some other folks. Um, but like, I think we are doing a disservice and at the same time, then trying to tell people what to do with their bodies, their lives, um, their career, right? I've, I've come to see people believe that women should have lots of information or knowledge, very little opinion, um, be very good in work, but not too good that they outshine their partner, um, be the world's best mother and please God forgive, not want children, right? Like there's something wrong. And so like, I, I think part of me, in this season of my life is thinking about what does it mean to support, protect, um, reinforce the value of Black women. Um, Ironically, it is also part of the reason that I've made the decision to apply for the job I have, um, because I thought about what it would mean to be a support for a Black woman coming into a space like Ohio State. Um, and so like, apparently that's really, really present on my mind right now that I don't know that I fully had realized before, um, that very moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, my mom's a black woman, my grandma's, you know what I mean? So like, I think that's dope. And I think you're right. It's like, it's a super unrealistic standard where it's like, Hey, I need you to be super feminine and, you know, nurturing and stuff like this. But at the same time, I need you to be super polished and I need you to be all about your business, but not too much. And I need you like, it's, it's super weird, man. And um, you talked about grace earlier. We don't give much of it at all. (laughs) It's, uh, it's brutal. But at the same time, you also want them in the music videos, dancing and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It's like, but don't, but you don't respect those ones, but like, I, I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're a conflicted people. <laughs> we're a conflicted people, man. Um, I think all of us are. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you had a, a message, you had the ears, eyes, and attention of all of the conflicted people in the world, and you could deliver that message, uh, what would you say? So I think there are probably two things. Um, the one that I probably am speaking to myself um, more than anybody else is that you're better than you think you are. Um you, you are ready for whatever life is in this moment. Um, and you are worthy of a community of people around you that will support you. Um, and then I think the other is that if that is true about you, so is it about everybody else. Um, if, if you can believe it about yourself, you should surely believe it about others. And then in the process, act, I think, in ways that allow us to like see the full humanity of people. We are... Um, beautifully created, flawed people. And so we will never be perfect, thankfully. Um, And so we will mess up, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be willing and able to see and give grace to folks um, for what might be our best day, maybe their hardest. Um, And so to judge them on their hardest day while you're sitting at your best day just seems unfair. Um, And so I think that probably is most important. And then if you... You, if you if you see folks who are mistreated, the best thing you can do is to intervene. Um, you may not have the solution, 
but you might give them hope, faith, um, opportunity to believe that there is something more for the day ahead um, that might very well bring them further than what they would have allowed themselves to be. So. Beautiful. Hope is powerful. It keeps people going um, through the darkest hours. And uh, I think really what you're saying is love that neighbor, you know, as you love yourself. So um, I appreciate you, man. I really, this has been a wonderful conversation and uh, I thank you for joining me on the podcast for sure. No, I thank you for the opportunity. And I'm going to say, I have hope sitting at my front door. Um, I see it every day I walk out the house. <laughs>